The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that has been uh, very popular in our broadcasts and, and in our programs generally is the entire question of what uh, in what direction has archaeology gone and how has the profession changed in terms of job opportunities and I'd like to plan uh, going forward a number of programs in that direction and one of the ways I'd like to start it off is by talking to a number of archaeologists that have grown up and matured in this profession at various points in time over the past 50 years. The profession is very dynamic. It's changing significantly, as many of you may have gathered from our previous discussions, certainly in terms of the changing balance between applied archaeology and academic archaeology, where in the course of my limited lifetime, uh, it has gone from largely being an academic occupation that was uh, essentially, as far as I can tell, and these aren't formally analyzed, but we could figure that it's pretty much been 90% academic uh, and 10% applied, maybe 80-20, certainly when I started out in the 1970s. And that has been, there has been a 180 degree shift in that ratio to the point where right now it is probably at least 80 percent, possibly even 90 percent, cultural resource and heritage management, and 10 to 20 percent in the academic domain. One of the things I'd love to do, and what I'm going to do in this program, is to interview uh, one of my closest colleagues, uh, Dr. Stan Green of Monmouth University, who actually graduated college with me in 1971 at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and has, a very su- has had a very successful career in archaeology, and I would like for him to reflect on his career path and the changes in the profession that he has experienced uh, over the course now of close to 50 years. Uh, So uh, Stan Stan Green is a professor of anthropology at Monmouth University 
And uh, I don't need to give you his biography because we have summarized it in a previous program. And we're going to be talking about it as we go along. Stan is an expert in Irish archaeology, later prehistory, and has also uh, been uh, a very successful academic and has worked and is now teaching cultural heritage management to a large degree in the courses that he is involved with at Monmouth University. So it is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Stan Green. Stan, thanks so much for showing up. My pleasure, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Stan, let's get started with uh, your early career and how you got involved in archaeology, what motivated you to get going, and how it's been evolving as, as, uh, in, in your early, early years. Let's divide it up that way. Let's start with the early Stan as an archaeologist. Sure. Yeah, well, I've, I've reflected about this a lot. As one gets uh, on in the career, one does do some reflection. And uh, I've, it's kind of, an, I've kind of an interesting thread, which is that I've always been interested in um, things environmental. And um, when I went to Stony Brook, I was uh, tagged by my high school guidance counselor, someone who was good in science. And those of us who were good in science in New York um, often got told to to um, apply to Stony Brook. That was a science school. But when I got there, I found out that science um, rarely met med school. And, um, and I, I discovered anthropology as a way of looking at basically um, the relationship between people and, and the environment. I actually found that through some books I was looking at um, in, the, um, in the bookstore. And um, amazingly, when, I, when you and I graduated, Joe, you probably don't remember this, or you may remember it, but the first uh, administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency was our keynote speaker. So we came out, I came out, you came out um, of college just when the environmental movement was starting to take hold in certain American, certain uh, political policies. It was also the first, the first um, Earth Day was during our undergraduate years. And so my, my interest has always been in environmental. Now, when I started out, I started out in the academic side of things. So, um, I took a degree at Stony Brook, and then I went to the University of Massachusetts, where I studied um, uh, environmental history in in uh, in Northern Europe, uh, specifically in Denmark, um, and looked at the the um, kind of the correlation between archaeological evidence and paleoenvironmental environmental history evidence, which is very has long been studied in in Europe, uh, in Denmark, in Scandinavia, and in, in the United Kingdom. So. My um, my theme of interest has uh, long been in that environmental range. Um, not to jump right to today, but the point that I think we're probably going to eventually come to, which is that um, not knowing, but um, certainly being lucky to kind of fall in that groove, I think the primary groove right now, the primary area where archaeologists can make the biggest difference, is probably in environmental archaeology um, because of... Uh, uh, issues such as climate change and uh, environmental history, which archaeologists um, um, are expert at. So let's get into the actual nuts and bolts of your career. You got your BA at Stony Brook in uh, 1971. I know that. Tell us a little bit about that and the transition to graduate school and uh, get into a little bit more detail 
on how you started to concentrate on a particular area, not just your original interest in environmental archaeology, right. but how it fell into sort of a specific locus on how you were going to pursue your career and how are you going to pursue pursue your specific academic interests? Right. Uh, well, I, you know, it, it, at Stony Brook, the undergraduate degree was in anthropology, and I um, decided I was going to be interested. I was interested in North American archaeology, or at least Western Hemisphere archaeology. That's probably because two of the professors I had were um, um, experts in those areas, uh, Phil Wegand and uh, Pedro Armias. Um, so I went off and I finished my degree and I decided to go to graduate school. Um, and in those days, this would have been 1971, graduate school was sort of, a, you know, a, you know, one of the main uh, pathways. It was sort of out there for you. And most graduate students, if you got into a doctoral program, they would uh, pay your way or at least give you a small, they'd basically give you a tuition waiver and they may a small stipend to teach. And back then, you could live on that. I don't know how, looking back on it, we did, but we did. Um, we did. So I went to the University of Massachusetts expecting to um, to uh, focus in on North American archaeology. Um, but as it turned out, they were going through sort of a uh, 19, in the early 1970s, there was a big change in the field, kind of topically. And there was kind of a, a change from uh, kind of traditional archaeology, largely a lot of it coming out of schools like Harvard, toward a more, um, what people call processual archaeology, uh, behavioral archaeology, coming out of schools like Michigan. And the University of Massachusetts was, was made a huge hire of, I don't know, four or five new professors. Mo- many of them were from Michigan, or at least a Michigan school. And uh, I entered graduate school with about 30 other colleagues. It was a big growth period for graduate school back then. Um, and as it turned out, the specialty... Um, at UMass turned out to be inter- uh, Europe, and that was a focus fu- function of the faculty they hired. So I ended up becoming um, a um, uh, someone interested, remaining interested in environmental issues, but basically being um, um, uh, encouraged or uh, that's probably the right word, I suppose. But you know, into into taking that uh, issue to study um, European prehistory which I did under the tutelage of Martin Wopst, who was a brand-new uh, professor at the University of Michigan um, who was um, uh, focusing on hunter-gatherers. My interest was developing into the origins of farming. So I went to the University of Massachusetts, and I um, ultimately studied um, the transition to agriculture in Neolithic Denmark, I studied for, I don't know, six or seven months in uh, the Copenhagen, uh, University of Copenhagen and the National Museum of uh, Denmark, which were literally across the street from each other, studying the pollen and the environmental history at, uh, at the Nas- National Museum and the archaeology um, under Professor Klaus Ronspohr and the... Um, and the, at the University of Copenhagen, so I was quite privileged to um, to to, uh, to work with those people. Actually, I, I, one of the key lessons I always bring with me and what I teach is that um, mentoring is a key. I mean, having somebody take an interest in you is really what makes you know is the bottom line for success. And I was very lucky about that. So um, I completed my degree in 1976. I kind of went through it very quickly. I'm that kind. I'm kind of a you know. Uh, very focused when I when I have a project and um, 
And it was interesting because, as I look back on it, the whole field changed in the mid 1970s from a and, and the academic field, uh, the academic side, um, pretty much across the social sciences and maybe across most of the fields. And so, prior to 1976, it was a buyer's mar a seller's market. You could go out and get a job, but in 1976, things just dried up quite literally, and. Um, the academic market just closed. And it, to this day, 40 years later, it really has gotten very much, uh, has pretty much been a, a dry market, um, which I think correlates very strongly with the fact that many people in archaeology ultimately found their, their work outside the academic side of things. So while the environmental um, uh, side of things, environmental policy, environmental impact statements, all the, all the needs for archaeologists in the consulting world were increasing, um, maybe exponentially, academically they were they they declined to practically zero. Very difficult to get an academic position, um, and uh, but the the field was sort of opening up to people that could apply their their skills to uh, to applied anthropology, applied archaeology. Uh, I was lucky, and I got a job, a one year position at the University of South Carolina to teach. And I stayed down there 18 years, um, and that's Chapter 2, which I'll get to if you want me to, but I'll stop talking right there. Well, let me ask you one of the questions that I think a lot of, uh, first of all, a lot of students, irrespective of field, uh, would be very interested in, especially students in anthropology and archaeology, and that is, of course, the uh, pervasive question of funding and money. Uh, at that time, at the time that you and I went to grad school, there was money around, wasn't there? There was. Why don't you talk a little bit about how we financed our educations and, and how that scenario has changed over time? Right. Well, I, yeah. well first of all, uh, the cost of education was much lower. Um, and at, at undergraduate, I think probably the tuition was about $200 a semester for tuition and then whatever it cost you to live. But you had to live somewhere anyway. But in any case, um, to undergraduate, the costs were very low. And, when, and if you were to go on to graduate school, the tuition was still very low. If you uh, even probably at public uh, private schools, UMass was a public school. But um, and then they would they had teaching assistantships. Um, and I remember the first one I got was for three thousand dollars a semester. And for that, I think I taught I don't know two classes, three. I don't know how many classes I taught. There were sections right. of a larger lecture. Um, but there was always funding for doctoral students, for graduate students in general. Um, so you didn't really develop a debt as you were. You didn't live very high on the hog, but you didn't develop any student debt coming out of undergraduate or graduate to speak of. And um, that's a huge difference now. Um, of course, that's that's a, that's a huge difference. In addition to which, um, at graduate school, already the environmental uh, funds were starting to show up. And so I actually worked on a couple of projects that paid me, um, you know, for to writing up environmental impact statements for certain uh, projects that were getting done on state land in Massachusetts or federal projects. So there was lots of funding for graduate students, and uh, certainly in the anthropology and archaeology, I presume, in other fields as well. And you proceeded to uh, basically, even under those circumstances and at that time, you went through the program relatively quickly. I mean, you were in grad school for five years and you were out with a PhD, which is something that doesn't happen very much anymore. Right. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was able to do that, um, partly because I was funded, so I didn't have to have another job other than the job that was tied to my, to my um, 
uh, it worked, you know, the teaching assistantship. I also had an outstanding um, um, mentor, uh, two mentors who really helped me out a lot, and both of whom had sort of a practical view toward education, um, on graduate education, which was that it was not the you weren't meant to, uh, as some people call it, marinate in the field for 10 years and, you know, spend 10 <laughs> years just doing this stuff. And I know people that right. use that term as opposed to using it as a way for developing a professional credential, knowing that it's not the end. You're going to keep working. But you. Uh, so I had two people that helped me out a lot with that. Um, yeah, so I sort of blasted through it. Um, and uh, luckily I did because really, I mean, quite literally, 1976, 1975, I had friends who graduated, um, got their, their PhDs or not quite their PhDs. They were finishing up. We had jobs, three, four, five offers. Um, when I graduated, when my cohort graduated, 76 and afterwards, it was hard to get one offer. The, the, the market closed that quickly. Um, and academia just shrunk. And, um, at that time also, Part of what was going on was they um, eliminated, I guess it was a federal thing, eliminated the uh, mandatory retirement age of 70 70 years old so people didn't retire. And so positions that people thought were going to open up didn't open up. So there there were a lot of market forces, um, and there was much more money, and again, the environmental funding was was opening up. Um, So those people who were in position to take advantage of that um, could do well, and um, many of the you know the people that uh, many of the people graduated with me ended up in academia, but it might have been close to fifty-fifty. About fifty percent ended up in the private sector. And we're going to have to take a break here, and we will return with our very fascinating discussion with Dr. Stan Green of Monmouth University right after these words. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. 
Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I am interviewing an esteemed colleague of mine and a very, very close friend, uh, Dr. Stan Green, who is a professor of anthropology at Monmouth University. We're discussing careers in archaeology, which is a topic that has been represented to me, actually, by a number of listeners as being a very very interesting one, not just to uh, up-and-coming graduate students and professionals, but also as a sort of a model for what higher education is, where it's going. And one of the questions that we're seeing coming to the fore, especially in this day and age, is the significance of having an applied field. And archaeology traditionally is has been perceived of and conceived of in, in many ways as a uh, not necessarily necessarily um, applied or pragmatic field. And as I have discussed on numerous occasions, as, as, and as my uh, colleague Stan is saying, uh, that has changed dramatically. And by reviewing Stan's, uh, Stan's career, I think it's sort of a capsule of how archaeological career pathways have changed over the course of the last 50 years. Yeah, we're getting older. Um, But this is certainly a a map and a pathway that I think is very instructive to up-and-coming archaeologists. So, Stan, we were talking about your early career. You say you were at uh, the University of South Carolina for 18 years. Give us a little bit of a summary of what you uh, felt you had gained from that and how you saw the career pathway changing as uh, you were going through your career at South Carolina. Right. Well, my my uh, my years at the University of South Carolina as professor of anthropology and then eventually chair of the anthropology department were foundational to my uh, philosophy of the the uh, importance of archaeology as a profession um, and as a uh, uh, as a, and and the importance of building in. Um, certain things into archaeology programs that allow people to have a, a job, develop careers outside of academia. Not that academia is so bad, but it's really not. Um, it's really the minority profession, and most people think of teaching as the majority profession. Uh, when I first got to South Carolina, I was put in charge of, the, um, of developing a field school for the uh, undergraduates, uh, the undergraduate program, that was all there was, was a BA program at South Carolina. Um, so I, um, I worked, I developed a program at a local um, uh, site called the Mulberry Site, which is a fantastic site. It's a, it may have been the capital of the southeastern uh, um, uh, um, Native Americans in Camden, South Carolina, um, but mm-hmm. also built upon it was a, was the plantation, the Mulberry Plantation, 
And so there was a mixture of historic and prehistoric, um, and it was almost a textbook version of stratigraphy and all kinds of things like that. Um, in some ways, I guess like Cahokia, although Cahokia doesn't have a historic component, I don't believe, whereas no. the Mulberry Plantation is actually uh, has a long and, and rich historic ac- um, aspect to it. Um, but what I um, what I what I endeavored to do was to develop a master's level program to. Um, to complement that undergraduate program for a couple of reasons. One was I was I was already um, 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 set in my thoughts, I guess, or or at least I thought my vision was, in fact, that um, that these students could come out with a with a solid master's degree and actually gain employment and do what they enjoy, which is archaeology. Um, mm-hmm. When students go on to a master's level, usually. Um, that means they're committed via their interest, their passion, whatever. And um, if they can get a job uh, and develop a career within that, then that's that's what we want to do as educators, give them the possibility of doing that. So we developed, a, um, uh, along with this field school, a, a master's program in public anthropology. I modeled it a little bit after the University of Arkansas, which is really the only other school that had that, a very, a very uh, excellent program, actually, a master's level. And here's the, here's the thing, the, the change in mindset that occurred, and this was occurring to me in the late 70s, um, but it really is the mindset that shifted when the market shifted, I think, um, which is that the Ph.D., of course, is a terminal degree in anthropology, but the Ph.D. in going into academia was really not the best way um, if you were looking to develop a career. The, the, really, the best, um, the best uh, way for most people would be to get a master's, a professional master's degree, and go on and do archaeological research. Either it could do it academically, but most likely, uh, or at community colleges, but more likely do it out in the, in the private sector uh, as part of environmental consulting. And you and I, Joe, have had this, you know, we had this conversation, um, and I think uh, that um, one thing that still nags the academic uh, community, I think the academic community is still not, even, even after 40 years, quite caught up to the realities here, but... Uh, even though um, in conservation, in cultural resource management or heritage studies or whatever, um, you're often handed the project or you're asked to do a request, for, you know, a request for proposal to do to deal with a certain um, project. That doesn't mean you don't bring your expertise and your toolkit and your and your problems to that and try to learn about it because you can't learn about anything unless you bring unless you ask questions of it. So. Um, at South Carolina, I developed a program, and I insisted, and it was not, I, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm, I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I did this single-handedly. The other people work with me, but there still was resistance, for example, to input methodology into it, statistics into it, make require, making field work a requirement for the program. So we did that for the master's program. You had to have a summer's worth of field work to graduate. That wasn't true of most master's programs. Most master's programs were like traditional academic programs where you just did some sort of research paper. But you had to have uh, strength in, me- in methodology. And one of the things that I was lucky, I guess, or just fell into my lap, I suppose, or at least, at least I saw it, and it was there as an opportunity, where South Carolina was also developing a strong interest out of the geography department and geographic information systems. 
So I worked strongly with them. I involved them in my own research, which was eventually in Ireland, but also I involved them in develop in, into our master's program so that master's students could take an excellent sequence of courses in geographic information systems, which I told them, um, and to this day I say it, you know, when I'm at school probably every day, if you can be at least an informed user in GIS, you are gonna, hey, you're going to come to the top of the pile of any resume you put in for a job. Um, it's such a strong methodology. Um, so my, I guess to sum up, what I, what I saw then and what I still see now and what academics still, still to a certain extent resists is the, is the applied methodological strengths of archaeology, what makes it different from a lot of other fields because you can go out in the environmental consulting world with tools such as statistics, um, even interviewing skills, survey skills, geographic information system skills, and you can you can um, and you can plug in and contribute to a to an ongoing ongoing consulting firm and um, with an archaeology degree, maybe better than any other degree. I'm, I'm very passionate about that. You can tell, and uh, and I think that um, that today just so, just finalizing what I'm saying today, I believe the master's degree is the should be the primary and is the most effective professional credential for in the social sciences um, for for students developing careers. A few let me let me stop you for a second, Stan. Um, Just but one the majority question. of them can lead really productive, important lives, even more important than academia. When you think about issues like climate change, you can lead right. really important lives by gaining that master's level thing, levels um, competence. So that really was founded in my 18 years. I, I didn't go to South Carolina thinking that, but all the things came together. And the public anthropology program is extremely successful. There are dozens and dozens of students who graduated from that. Um, and a lot of them work in the southeast, but they work all over the world as well. So um, that, 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 that 18 years, which was my primary 18 years of teaching, uh, was foundational to this, this discussion you and I have had about how important it is um, all the important things that archaeology as a profession can contribute to the to the, the betterment of society and for developing careers for students. So let's let's get into that just a little bit. Um, I, I was uh, I was very uh, happy to see how much work you've done in that direction. I mean, as as I followed your career moving forward, and what you've indicated it, over the course of your career in uh, in South Carolina and in teaching is uh, even on your end just understanding that the way the world was working was uh, necessitating a complete if not a comprehensive changeover from an applied profession, from a, an academic profession to an applied profession. And I think you're right. I think by and large, you know, we've both worked for this, uh, for in, the, in this crazy field for a really long time. What I have found, and, and I'm curious as to your reflections on this, I have found that we have gone from an absolute denial on the part of academics, that uh, that this change uh, was a coming, b was going to be pervasive, and c necessitated a transformation in the way ped pedagogy had to be um, implemented 
to a tolerance of it. And finally, I think with this next wave of academics coming in, an understanding that this is the way of the future and that essentially the old models are basically gone forever. Do you see that as well? Well, I, I, that's that's the trend. I, I'm not quite as optimistic as you are. I think we've gotten past the denial stage, but I see so much resistance in academia because, um, and maybe it's another generation that it'll take. But I see so many of my colleagues throughout who just do not get the 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 applied aspect, the professional, what I like to rather call the professional aspect of studying these uh, within these disciplines and between these disciplines. Um, and uh, so it's 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 frustrating, uh, for example, that when um, well I started a master's program here at Monmouth, and that's still moving on. And you you uh, generously taught one of my classes, and you saw uh, ten of our ten of our students, um, and they're all good students. They come from good backgrounds. Um, their weakness coming out of the BA level and even into a year into into Monmouth is is the methodological side for the most part. A couple of them have developed that. Um, but um, that is the, uh, that's, that's the area that I want to work most strongly on. And then even within methodology, writing, writing skills, um, because uh, we, our last class, the one that you, you taught, the last class after the one you taught, um, I, had, uh, I dug up, and it took me 30 minutes, to dig up 15 job descriptions of places that were hiring anthropologists with either a BA or an MA. I mean, mm-hmm. just on the web. You know, they were qualified. All the students in that class would have been qualified for those jobs, um, uh, you know, by the time they finished their master's. Some were qualified already because some were even only asked for a BA. Um, and the focus on most of those things were um, aspects of, um, of project management, teamwork, and methodology. In, to different levels, um, and some even said, you know, ability to work with others, um, and most of them said a master's degree in archae- anthropology, archaeology, or a related field. And I dug that up in 15 minutes. You couldn't find 15 jobs academically, and I, I, there may not be 15 jobs. Out, maybe there are, but there aren't many more out there. You know, if you did a comprehensive search um, with a PhD. So, um, but the, the point is that the the toolkits, um, the, the the way of thinking, um, the ability to think, the way to you know ask questions is what uh, is what the, what's needed out there. And academics still, most academics still are sort of you know tied to the um, the old ways. Uh, quite honestly, right to the, and right. It's you know it's the way culture changes. I mean, there is there are iconic books, but I think you know reading Radcliffe Brown. I guess we all read it. I guess it's not a bad thing to read, but if I had them read something, I'd have them read, you know, Peter Haggett, not Radcliffe Brown. You know, I don't know Peter Haggett, the locational geographer. Um, And you can't read everything. (laughs) No, but I, I think you're right in that. I guess my question is, when somebody comes into a program, and let's let's talk about the latter part of your uh, career at South Carolina, when somebody comes in with a very straight, very, very academic perspective on this, what do you tell them? What do you tell them about a career pathway? Do you direct them immediately towards a very, very sort of theoretical perspective? Or do you just say, stop, 
before you get into uh, a presentation of what you want to do as an archaeologist or an archaeological scientist or whatever you want to call it, yeah. uh, you need to be aware of what the job market is and what your professional potential can be. What do you, how do you deal with that? Right. Well, you know, that's a very interesting question, actually. I hadn't thought of it from that point of view. Um, now, I've primarily been, you know, involved in master's level programs. But, um, and this may explain what I'm going to say next, because most of the students don't speak like they want to go into teaching. A few do, but it's a minority. I, it might be that 90, 10%, 90%, 10% you were talking about. Most of them come in and say they're interested in archaeology. They want to get a master's degree or, an, or a graduate degree. They might even know what degree they want. And they want to go out and work. Um, and many of them want to work in public aspects. Like we have two or three students in that class who want to talk about, they want to go into situations where they bring, pub, they bring um, archaeology to the public. They believe the public needs to understand how important history and prehistory and heritage is, um, and students and need to bring it to the classroom. Um, there are other ones who are very specifically interested in ecosystems, and uh, there's one in the class who's interested in Chesapeake Bay. So he's interested in moving into a situation where he can help the health, you know, bring something from the archaeological point of view to, uh, to an ecological problem. So the students, in many ways, are ahead of the faculty. Um, that's what I really kind of found. And they're also... Um, uh, ahead of the faculty in some ways, um, in terms of the way they the way they want to learn and the way they learn, which is through experience and through uh, more hands-on stuff. Whereas faculty still are very lecture-oriented, and you know, basically, you know, they think that. that and I, I don't mean to you know be so unkind to our colleagues, but I've, I've dealt with so many hundreds of them over the last forty years. Um, they basically think they have knowledge to pass on. Um, to their, you know, to these students, they do have knowledge to pass on. But what they really need to pass on is how you create knowledge. How do you and know on that you note, know? I'm going to have to take another break. Sure. Um, my colleague Stan Green is uh, the subject and the interviewer, to, the interviewee on today's program, and it's a fascinating discussion on the evolution of careers in archaeology over the past half century. Um, we have lived it. And uh, in a sense, we're trying to pass on that experience and sort of to look in the greater sense of where this career, this uh, pathway, a uh, career pathway is going. And we will be back with the final section and segment of our discussion after these words. Please don't go away. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you a pet parent? If so, you'll want to stay up to date on the latest tech gadgets and advances for your canine or feline friend. With a ton of apps, websites, tech toys, and more, you'll want to be in the know when it comes to the real treasures and the duds. For that information, listen for Pet Lover Geek with host Lorian Clemens. We test and discuss what's hot and what's not on the pet front, so you'll be better informed. Tune in Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. 
our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest on this uh, episode of Indiana. The Jones myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology is my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stan Green. Stan is professor of anthropology at Monmouth University, and we have been discussing his career trajectory, if you will, as sort of a pathway for understanding how the future of our profession is changing and how it will be taking root going forward. Stan, I know that after your career at South Carolina, you became a dean for uh, for many years. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how it affected the uh, perspective that you have developed on careers and education and their connection going forward? Right. Sure. Um, well, becoming a dean, I was a dean of arts and sciences for 22 years, which, of course, again, from the point of view of career, I never planned on that. Um, but my, my interest in educating students and developing programs that allow them to develop careers was what interested me in becoming a dean, because when you're a dean of arts and sciences, that means you can work in between disciplines. So you don't have to, you're, you know, you are not just limited to one, one area. So I worked very strongly in areas of interdisciplinary approaches and also in terms of uh, professionalizing different kinds of careers. So I got to work with English departments. I got to work with art departments. Um, I got to work, of course, uh, in anthropology and political science and trying to um, work with the faculty to a certain extent to convince them, and I won't you know, deny that, um, but also to help them from my experience in terms of developing a professional edge to their programs so that the students graduate with some kind of credential and toolkits that they can develop their careers. Because, again, across the liberal arts, um, you are, um, you're, the job market is very, very limited uh, in the academic side, but it's wide open in other areas. 
Um, and, and there's a huge need for people who have a broad uh, array of skills, for example, writing and communication skills, um, and then the specifics that might tie into their particular areas. Um, so, you know, I tell, I tell students, and I know it sounds cliche, but they, they're in, a, in an area now where they have to develop their, you know, they develop their own jobs. They create jobs, and that doesn't mean that they don't apply for a job. But when they apply for a job, they're going, they need to be in a position to be able to say, this is what I can do. Right. This is what I can do. Um, if you're an artist, you can move into advertising if you still want to, or you can move into graphic design. You can still maintain your artist identity. But if you want to make a living in the arts, um, it's not going to happen. I mean, becoming a, you know, working for, a, you know, making a living working in a major symphony is, is less of a possibility than, you know, getting an academic position. But that doesn't mean you have to give up being a musician. Because there's lots of ways of applying music um, in lots of different and, and art in lots of different ways. So, um, so as a dean, that was always my push. And it, believe me, I had I, I held a lot of retreats and I held a lot, had a lot of discussions. That was my. I even ran a workshop for deans at the at the national dean. There's a national dean, a couple of national dean conferences, and the room was filled. And there were deans who just didn't get it. They're they're coming out of traditional realms, um, and. So the marketplace is not really well aligned with the educational institution. Um, and you hear this in lots of different ways. And, you know, and you can read it in the newspapers or hear it in the news. You know, there's a skills gap or we're not producing students who can do things that need to be done. Um, I don't think it's rocket science, but I do think it means there needs to be a, you know, a change in mindset. So how do we do that? How do we change that mental template? Uh, it, it's becoming critical because because right. we are training students in all levels of the higher education system right. to to think in ways that are obsolete, and it's almost an injustice to the student to teach them techniques, no skills in some cases, right. theoretical mental templates that uh, down the road will not serve them in any good stead as they move along. What do we do? Well, I do think it's an injustice. Well, I think we, um, uh, you have to develop, you have to have people have leaders who, who understand it, I mean, and also have been through it. I mean, like you and I, we can teach those kinds of skills, um, even though you might not be able to teach how to do coring, you know how to interpret it. I don't know how to teach GIS, but I know how to interpret it. So we have been through it. So you do need a level of teachers um, and um, leaders who are going to be able to um, uh, push that agenda and teach that agenda. But um, it, it's a political process, too. I can say one of the... Um, People that I most admire in higher ed is a man named Andy Chan. He teaches. He's a he's a, uh, works at Wake Forest, and he actually Wake Forest has a program where the whole and you know Wake Forest. If you ask people about Wake Forest, at least most people, many people will know it. It's an incredibly excellent small liberal arts school, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's about among the best. It's as good as any other. It's probably two thousand students at most. But what they do, and it's through Andy's work primarily, is they tie all their liberal arts education toward career mentor with career mentoring. So they're not turning it into a vocational school, but they're teaching both the liberal arts and the writing skills, the communication skills. But they're working with the students from the day they get into the university to the time they graduate in terms of cultivating their career interests. 
and that's what has to happen. And the students have to learn to ask for it. Um, and um, and how one changes culture, that's, you know, what anthropologists are supposed to know how to do. I just know what I, I've been doing, which is talking for about 40 years about it. I've seen some good success. I've seen some situations which just don't change. But my feeling is that if, I think education has about 20 more years. Um, and if it doesn't start changing um, in, in 20, if it doesn't change dramatically in 20 years, higher ed as we know it is really going to shrivel. It's already started shriveling. Um, and you can see schools going out of business. Uh, you can see alternate ways of learning um, and, um, and employers actually taking on a lot of the education, which happens in certain areas too. Um, so uh, there's no magic formula for it. And I don't really think it's rocket science. I think it's culture change. Um, there's an old saying, you teach the way you were taught. Right. So maybe if we, you know, our generation and uh, the teach people we're teaching and the people we're working with are, um, you know, emulate the way we do it, then they then they pass it on and culture changes that way. Um, I had an interesting session with my students, the undergraduates. Uh, they were particularly, you know, quiet one day. They're generally pretty quiet. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to talk about culture change, and I said, well, how many of you... Um, why do you go to college? Do you go to college so that you can develop the skills of your grandparents? What did your grandparents do? And they started talking about what they grandparents said. So if you learn those skills, would they do you any good? <laughs> what do you, what right. do you well, I mean, my grandfather sold apples on that, you know, in Essex Street in Lower in Manhattan. So is that a career? No, that times have changed a lot, right? Um, and it's, it's a sense of, uh, of, of getting people to, uh, students have to push too. And um, when you, you probably didn't notice it, but I'll just mention this. Um, when you walk to the classroom that you taught in for my, my graduate seminar, um, there, was, there was the psychology department. When I first came, the psychology department was a classic psychology department. And every year they'd asked me to, um, to, give a, to come. They have, a re, they have a seminar at the end of the, each year where the kids put, you know, do their research project, present their research projects. And I would give them a 20-minute speech, um, and most of it was career-oriented. I would go through that program and say, this person here is working on that. Well, if you do that and you have an interest in working in human resources in a corporation, you're well-prepared for that. And, I, you know, statistics, you're working on statistics, there's a lot of places where you can take those statistics. And now when you walk down that hallway, it's loaded. And what they have it loaded with on the walls are successful students who have taken their psychology degrees and gone on and gotten good careers um, in the private sector, in NGOs, in education, all over the place. You know, they just they put all the logos of all the companies they work for, and they you know, in the ten years, they have just completely changed the emphasis of that program without not change without changing really what they're teaching, but changing the way they were teaching it. So how how really is that happens, is that going to happen you know, with us? Is it going to happen? Well, I don't know. It happens in certain areas. It happens in certain areas. I mean, you you're a very successful company, and um, you have I don't know what degrees your the people that work for you have. Um, but they are very successful working out in the real world, and there are many, many archaeologists who do that, um, who, who are doing um, uh, working in, um, in, in, in the field of heritage, I guess, is the big one. Right. Um, and uh, there are many that are working with master's degrees, some working with BAs, some, I guess, working with PhDs. 
I think I think it's ha- it's got to ha- it has to happen. There's, if it doesn't happen, then you know our history goes away, which I don't think is going to happen. I hope it doesn't. Um, I hope it doesn't. Too. What might go away is you know traditional education, um, but I think more and more students are going to move on to, for example, master's degree in anthropology, as opposed to PhDs, especially since education is mm-hmm. so darn expensive now. Um, and you got to get some people in power who have that, you know, have that perspective, who have that understanding. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm not saying it's easy because academia, oh my God, I mean, I go to meetings and you would, the things they talk about are just not even close to what most, for the most part, their students are going through. And that's what academia needs to be about. Education needs to be about the students. And a lot of faculty think it's about them because that's where they work. Um, so I don't want to end on a pa- on a pessimistic note. Things have changed. Things have changed over the last forty years. The whole environment. You know better than I do. The amount of money. I don't know if you know the numbers, but Lord knows the incredible additional amounts of money that have gone into environmental consulting. If you want to put that in the most general sense, from when they first started in the sixties through now, fifty years. Right. I mean, there's so much money, right? Absolutely, it's unbelievable. uh, That is where the source of funding is going to come from. Right, absolutely. And that doesn't mean that it has to be bureaucratically used, or it doesn't mean that, in fact, we as archaeologists can't pursue our interests, because our interests are the interests they they want. I mean, they want to know about environmental change. They want to know about the the history of New York. They they need to know these things. they need reconstruction. As a roadway the, to the, the future. Sea, Absolutely true, yeah. So that we know how to plan for climate change in such matters. Absolutely. I mean, climate change, I think, is, the, is that's the issue of the, of the century. Um, and uh, we are in fantastic position um, to contribute to some solutions on that. Because um, we know the past in concrete ways that other people don't. You know, archaeologists always use documents, but historians rarely use artifacts. I don't know if you've noticed that, but... That's true. It is true. You're right. Yeah. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. And I just hope that we're at a point right now where we can convince our colleagues and our colleagues, fortunately, and I I, I don't want to say this uh, uh, sort of... uh, sardonically, if you will, but our, our, our colleagues, our cadre is uh, getting close to retirement age, and yep. all I can say is that I hope that the upcoming generation uh, will have this vision for the future, which is clearly staring us in the face. If we don't do something right. about climate change, we're all in deep trouble, and I am right. noticing that there is a much more progressive a pragmatic focus on the part of contemporary students. I see it every day. I saw it in your class. I see it at NYU where I teach occasionally. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do see that perspective, and I'm encouraged by that. There are obviously some political issues that have to be dealt with in the near and and the medium term, but hopefully those will all mesh together in time, as we both know, to avoid very difficult circumstances that uh, we have a little window into and it ain't pretty. So on that note, I want to uh, thank my esteemed colleague and very good friend, uh, Dr. Stan Green of Monmouth University. Stan, thanks so much for participating in the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and these are important issues. 
And on that note, we'll be saying a good evening to all of you and look forward to speaking with you next time, next week, uh, with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 